0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Steve mentioned at the beginning of this service, we're starting a new sermon series this fall on the book of Psalms called Prayers for Real Life. We're only going to cover 10 of the 150 Psalms, Um, but that title is very intentional because God has given us a book of prayers, not for our ideal life, our perfect life, our pretend life, our social media life. The life that we think we should have but the real life that we have right now with all its messiness and anguish and anger and frustration and longing and tears and joy and praise and there's nothing that we cannot bring into the presence of Jesus and his church and that's the message of the psalms and um, so this morning you can follow along in your pew bibles or in the the bulletin because it's all in there as well let's pray together lord jesus we come before you you are our refuge and so no no matter where we have been this week or where we have been this morning or where we will be next week um, in our just curvy windy sometimes painful path through life you are our rock and our refuge and we can count on you and you never change and you are always faithful and the door is always open to know you as the friend of sinners So open your word to us now when we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. If you don't recognize that song, it's an American folk song sung by Johnny Cash. I wanted to sing it this morning, but Dean Steve has never asked, never invited me to sing a solo or to sing in the church choir. So I just felt like I didn't have the permission to do so. But Steve needs to know that, you know, he was getting his masters at Cambridge, you know, in choral conducting, but I spent eight years singing in the bass section of the Barnum Community Church Choir, yeah, population 460. Sitting in the bass section under the tutelage of and listening to one of the finest bass singers that I know, Willis. That is true. This is an absolutely true story. Willis opened up a whole new world to me when he said, uh, Yeah, you betcha, we sing those notes on the bottom with the tail going down. And that's like, wow, that like changed my life and opened up a whole new world to me. <laughs> anyway, back to my song. God is going to cut you down. That is the theme of Psalm 2. I can't think of a better way to summarize it. And you might think, that's good news? How is that good news? Verses 9 and 10 you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Is that not summarized and God is gonna cut you down? Psalm one and two are really the introduction to the book of Psalms and they're actually, as a literary unit, they hang together and I wish I had more time to explore that, but they're very brilliantly written to, to tie together. And it's, it's not really, Psalm one and two are not really prayers, they're more kind of like pre-prayer. They're more kind of like, if this was a house of prayer, Psalm one and two would be the front porch in which God meets us on the front porch and goes, hi, welcome to my house of prayer. Just want to get a few things straight before you come into my house. So that's Psalm one and two. But to begin here in Psalm two with the nations raging and the kings and rulers of the earth, it doesn't begin in a sanctuary. It doesn't begin with a worship service. It doesn't begin with rejoice the Lord is king. It begins with human kings and with human power. And why is that? And how does that teach us to pray? And how is that good news that God is going to cut people down? I'm not going to answer those questions. But let's come on in to Psalm 2, and let's walk through it together. There's three. This is actually a psalm that's written in a a couple of dramatic vignettes, So if this is a stage, a play, it moves from scene to scene. And I'm just going to do it in three scenes. The first is that the people revolt. The second scene is that God responds. And the third scene is that God offers grace. So first, the people revolt, verses 1 through 3. Now, we know something about the group of people that that the Word of God is talking about here. There are a group of people who are, notice, notice the verbs in this, that they're, they're, they're busy people, they're working hard, they're making noise, they're hatching plots, they got things to do, they got an agenda to fulfill, they're, they're, they're scheming and making plans, and who are they? Verse 2, they are the kings of the earth and the rulers who take counsel. And that little couplet of the kings and rulers is repeated again in verse 10. So we get this couplet of people, and and who are they? Who would they be today for us? Well, think of the names that pop up all the time on your newsfeed. People in political power, world leaders, presidents and prime ministers and governors and senators, people with social influence, celebrities and bazillionaires. They are the important people. They are the people that call the shots. They're the people that make the decisions. Unfortunately though, as the Bible clearly teaches and as history almost consistently shows, when you get people that have an enormous amount of power, an enormous amount of wealth, and an enormous amount of privilege, it leads to corruption and arrogance and cruelty and violence and a revolt against the living God. Doesn't always have to happen that way, but it seems to often happen that way. Now this week, I was thinking about this passage and I was going, I was listing names that I wanted to share with you, specific people, names. I was gonna name names today and I was gonna be really angry about these names. I was gonna tell you who's on my list of people I don't like that I wanna see cut down. But then I looked at verse one. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Who's that? Well, that's all of us. That's everybody. So this isn't just about them. It's not just about bad, corrupt people. This is a psalm about us. This is a psalm about the human condition. And I think about the times in my life and the ways that I have power and the ways that I have privilege, that I have not used it well, that I have used it to sin, that I have used it to hurt people, that I have used it to slander, that I have used it to live as a hypocrite. So I'm in this as well. Now look at, look at some of these verbs here in verse 2, or verse 1. They rage. That's pretty self-explanatory. The people's plot in vain. So the word plot there is exactly the same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 1, verse 2, where it says um, th- that the righteous meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. It's really the word meditates. It's, it's the same Hebrew word, so it's, it's a word that means to murmur, to talk out loud, to think in a focused way, and then to just, kind of, you know, to just kind of talk to yourself. And so these people are murmuring, whereas the righteous, they're meditating about how they can live under God's law. There are other people who meditate about how they can live above God's law. Difference. You see how these two psalms tie together. And then they set themselves. In the beginning of verse 2, they set themselves, they take a stand, or they plant themselves in a certain place. That reminds us of verse 3 in Psalm 1, that the righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water. The righteous set themselves in the presence of the Lord. And they know these people, they may not have a lot in common, but they have some differences, but they know what they're against. And it says in verse at the end of verse 2, they're against the Lord and they're against his anointed, saying in verse 3, the end goal, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the bonds were the, were the yoke that you would put on a farm animal to make sure it, and it wasn't abusive or mean. It would just make sure the, the, the oxen or the cattle was plowing in the right direction, going the way they're supposed to go. And so these people are saying, ah, get this, this yoke of God. Ah, I've got to get it off of me. It's choking me. It's killing me. i got to get rid of this thing. It is the original lie of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say you can't do that? What kind of repressive, oppressive, mean-spirited God would do that to you? Well, here's the thing we will wear a yoke. You cannot be a human being and not wear some kind of yoke, somebody's yoke. It could be a yoke of your own disordered desires, a yoke of lust or a yoke of anger or a yoke of greed. It's something that drives you, controls you. It could be the yoke of morality. You gotta try harder, you're not doing enough. You gotta do more. You're not cutting it, you're not enough. It could be the yoke of shame. It could be the yoke of image management. That's why Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew are so refreshing. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. Trade it out for your defective yoke. Take my yoke, and you will find rest for your souls. So there's the first little act in this play. The second act is God's response to this. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. So when I was about 10 years old, my dad would gather all the kids from the neighborhood and we would play a softball game. So we'd go to the park and we'd play softball. And inevitably, and my dad was, so he was the coach, he chose the teams, he was the umpire. And inevitably, in, as I recall, many of these games, he would make a call that I didn't agree with. So I'm sliding into third, and he calls me out. And I would jump up and go, that's the worst call I've ever seen in my life. It's like, what what kind of umpire are you? You need to get your glasses checked. That was a terrible call. And my dad would say, Matt, it was fair. I had the best angle. I know the rules. It was the right call. And I would keep arguing, and I would keep going. And then eventually, my dad would kick me out of the game. (laughs) I'd walk home, meditating under my breath, (laughs) plotting. I imagine him, like, I don't know, maybe talking to my mom. (laughs) Matt, what are we gonna do with Matt, you know? He's got authority issues towards sports officials, you know? I still do. What are we gonna do with him? and I imagine him just laughing about it. Laughter is the pinprick that bursts the balloon of human arrogance, but there's an edge to God's laughter. It's not quite like my dad's, because I don't think he had derision towards me, but there's an edge to God's laughter. It has derision in it, and why? Because these people he's talking about, the kings of the earth and the rulers, they're not little kids. They're not 10 year olds. They are people with enormous wealth and influence and power. And they can make policies and make decisions that can do a lot of damage to a lot of people. So there's derision in this when God laughs. And then in verse five it says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. There's two times in this passage where it talks about God's wrath, mentions the word wrath. Now, <clears throat> we like to think of God as a God of love, and God is a God of love. But the flip side of love is, is wrath, that you care about the things that are being destroyed in your good creation, especially when it, it just destroys creation or it destroys people whom God loves and made us his image. Now, normally in the Bible, it says almost always, almost everywhere, it says that God is slow to anger. God is enormously slow to anger. So why is he so quick to anger here? Well, again, primarily because he's addressing people with power who abuse that power. And God is saying, you keep thinking you're in charge, but you're not in charge. Sooner or later, I'm going to have to cut you down. And then in verse 6 and 7, God makes a counter move, and he says, as for me... As for me, and that in the Hebrew, that's like emphatic, like you guys, you do what you're gonna do, okay? You have free will, you do what you're gonna do, I'm gonna give you a really long rope, but I'm gonna do what I need to do. And here's what I'm gonna do, verse six, I am gonna set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Actually, I have a king. You kings, I have a king, the king of all kings. And remember in verse 2, it said they set themselves. Well, here it says in verse 6, it says, I set my king. I'm planting him. He's going to take a stand right here on Zion, my holy hill. So the context for this psalm was probably maybe for King David or maybe for another king in David's line. Um, But it also pointed to a greater than David King David, Messiah, so the New Testament writers and the early church picked on, p- picked up on this right away. It was so obvious. These were, this is Jesus, Messiah. This is the true King, the one that we've been longing for. And notice this. Notice where he's going to set him because this is really important. This little detail. It's in Zion, on my holy hill. Now, Zion was not a big place. It was not an important place in terms of politics or commerce or culture it wasn't like a new york city or a shanghai or an la or a london it was a uh, a small place and so god says i'll work in small places i love big places too i love big cities they're they're great they're wonderful but i'm going to start in a small place in a weak place and i'm going to start with the jewish people why because they're small And they're pretty powerless. And they drive me nuts, but I love them. And I'm crazy about them. And I'll never give up on them. And I'm going to use them as a beachhead. And through that beachhead, I'm going to reach all the nations of the earth. Now, it's really important. This theme runs through the whole Bible. God working through human weakness and human imperfection and human powerlessness. Because human history is littered with leaders, with rulers who have abused, who who have used their power to hurt people. And God comes in places of weakness, and the true master of the universe comes in the person of Jesus, and he humbles himself, and he eats with sinners, and he bears our sorrows, and he becomes the crucified one, the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. And so in verse 8, it says, ask of me and I will give, make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So it's not just Zion. It's not just the Jewish people. But I want this Messiah to draw all the nations to himself, every group of people to himself. And, and the nations become an important theme throughout the Psalms that God wants the nations to come and worship, the nations to come and, and share his joy. So verse 9, this is a little this is the more graphic one you shall break them talking about the Messiah with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel think of a pot I'm holding a pot it's made out of clay looks pretty strong but if I drop it it's going to shatter especially if I drop it against a rock well that's not very nice is it right but remember God is primarily talking to people who think they're invincible, invulnerable. They're convinced that there's a master of the universe. And he's saying, no, actually, you're really fragile. Your life is fragile. Your life is a gift. Who made the pot? Who holds the pot? It's Almighty God. And because of your flagrant revolt against God and because of your arrogance and because of your cruelty and because of your wickedness, I'm going to drop you and you are going to shatter. Sooner or later, I will cut you down. So those are the first two acts. Now the last act and the last verse of this psalm are actually, to me, really moving and stunning because it's a surprise ending. There's this offer of grace. There's this gentle invitation to everyone. But first there's a warning, so verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. The word therefore be wise means literally <clears throat> the ability to make a good decision, the ability to read the room, the ability to wake up and smell the coffee. And then verse 11 has this really strange phrase. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. How do you rejoice with trembling? Aren't those two opposite things? Well. We rejoice because God is good. We rejoice because God is merciful. We rejoice because God knows that we are dust. And yet he has compassion on prodigal sons and daughters and embraces them and welcomes them home. We rejoice because as St. Paul says, this saying is worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. We rejoice for that, but we tremble Because apart from that, there is no health in us. And there is no hope for us. And we could perish in the way. So verse 12 has this kind of weird-to-us-sounding image, kiss the sun. Most cultures on the earth know that when you're in the position of somebody who's just way more powerful than you, You get low, you go low. So there's bowing. In Papua New Guinea, when I come, because I'm American, and my son's a doctor, and I travel a long way to get there, and I'm a papa, they like hug me around my knees, like grown adults hugging me around my knees. Some Indian cultures, they would touch your feet, Hindu culture, or kiss the feet. It's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of acknowledgement that you are greater than I am. And it's a sign for us that Jesus is not our consultant. He's not on our board. He's not a member of a committee in our head. But he's Lord. And so I will kiss his feet. Now this last line is really interesting. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the Psalms do this. Hebrew, Hebrew poetry doesn't rely on rhyming, it relies on, re, relies on parallelism. So the first line of a verse gets repeated in the second line, but it's different. So for instance, verse 1, we already covered that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So it's like the same theme, but it's repeated in a different way. Sometimes it's intensified or heightened, but there's, so there's parallels. There's parallelism. Now. <clears throat> I find this really interesting and I found nobody in church history or no commentary that could corroborate this so I could be just out on a limb here but I'll take I'll go out on a limb verse the end of verse 12 has no parallel it is unparalleled it's like a lone little ballerina twirling on the stage like look at me look at me pay attention to me as you end this psalm this is the last thing I want you to remember Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And notice that word, all, everyone. For God so loved the world, everyone who believes, anyone who believes. So it's for you, it's never too late. You're never too far gone. You've never messed up too much. You're never too far from God's the reach of God's grace. Your baggage, your sins, your wounds, never too much for him. No secret, no secret anger, no secret sin, no secret shame. Not too much for the living God. But it's also for them. It's even for the pompous, cruel, corrupt, lying kings and rulers of the earth. It's for them. There's a door still open for them. So again, I go back to the question. If this is the porch to prayer, why begin here? Why not begin in the courts of God, singing praises? Instead, we walk into a world of darkness and power and corruption and human arrogance. And we have a choice. We can respond with hatred. We can respond with anger. We can respond with fear. We can respond with withdrawal and escapism. We can fight corrupt power with our power. And here the Psalms are telling us now Respond with love. Respond with faith. Respond with hope. That's the Christian response. Respond to the living God in prayer. You know, there's this incredible story in in the book of Acts, chapter 4, which I won't turn to, but I'll just summarize it real quickly. So the early church is facing a crisis. Some of their key leaders have been arrested, and there's storm clouds brewing on the horizon. The political powers that be do not like them, do not trust them, and they are going to hunt them down. And what do they do? They pray. They worship. They do what we do every Sunday. They come and they worship. And specifically, they pray out loud, and it's recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, they pray Psalm 2. Amazing. And then they say, they ask the Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray. They pray that in the midst of this, God will bring healing. They pray in the midst of this, God will bring salvation that God will change lives. Let me tell you a true story. Back in 1997, there was a family practice doctor, well, she's still alive, Dr. Patty Gibink. She was the first full-time Planned Parenthood abortionist in the state of South Dakota. She tells in her little memoir this remarkable journey of Jesus finding her, getting involved in a local church, Stopping to perform abortions. Becoming a woman who traveled around the globes providing health care to some of the f- poorest women on the planet. And what happened? What changed her? She didn't really quite know until years later. After her conversion, she got a letter from a 90-year-old Catholic nun named Sister Josita. And Sister Josita said in part, you don't know me, when i first heard that you were performing abortions i began lifting you up in prayer i do not believe abortion is right or a solution to an unwanted pregnancy i've prayed for you by name that one day your heart would be touched and you would stop performing abortions dr gibing writes her her initial intervention for me just a name and a face Move celestial mountains, making way for my future legacy of life. And then she says, may we all stay on our knees until the answer comes, just as Sister Jacinta did. So we're on the front porch, people, ready to enter the house of prayer. And God says, corrupt people, they might keep acting corrupt. Liars might keep lying. People might keep using their power wrong. They're going to do what they got to do. Eventually, if they don't repent, I'm going to cut them down. But here's what the church has got to do. Here's what you got to do. You got to pray. You got to pray for mercy. You got to pray for salvation. You got to pray for new creation to break into people's lives. You got to pray that lost people will find Jesus. You got to pray for people with stony hearts will find new hearts. You got to pray that sinners will be justified. You got to be enemy lovers and Christ bearers. May we all stay on our knees until the answer comes, just as Sister Jacita did. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.